0: Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. We
1: are thrilled to announce the third session of our new incubator program. If you have a business idea that involves a web or mobile app, we encourage you to apply to our eight-week program. We'll help you validate your market opportunity, experiment with messaging and product ideas, and move forward with confidence toward an MVP. Learn more and apply at tbot.io slash incubator. That's t-b-o-t slash i-n-c-u-b-a-t-o-r. We look forward to seeing your application in our inbox. Giant robot
2: smashing into other giant robot. This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host Will Larry,
1: and I'm your other host Victoria Guido. And with me today is Quincy Larson, host of the Free Code Camp podcast, teacher, and founder of freecodecamp.org, a community of people around the world who are learning to code together. Quincy, thank you for joining us.
0: Yeah. Thanks for having me, Will and Victoria.
1: Yeah. Thank you for being here. So I I understand that you made a big shift personally for yourself from California to Texas. How has that been for your family and for, um, you know, as a founder who is running a nonprofit?
0: Yeah. Things are going great. It was a big move. We had some kids and it was difficult to find like a good place to live in California. that didn't cost like millions of dollars. (laughs) So at least in the San Francisco Bay Area, we were living in East Bay. I grew up here in Texas and Oklahoma. And I was like, well, maybe we could go back to the Southwest. And so we did that and we were able to come back and comfortably purchase a home here in Plano, Texas. We were able to find one that was like really close to a really good public school system. And so every morning I'm able to walk my kids to school. And I'd say that Texas has been a great change from California where I lived for seven or eight years over there. And I love California. Uh, Texas has a lot of great things about it too. It is a little bit hotter than California. It doesn't quite have California's Mediterranean climate, but it's been great here. I like it. And I would say if people are thinking about moving to Texas from California, there are definitely some really good spots of Texas that I think they'll feel really comfortable in.
2: That's awesome. Yeah. I'm originally from Louisiana, so... You're bringing back like memories of uh, me growing up, always going to Texas and stuff. And I know exactly where Plano is, so that's amazing. How has it been with your kids? Because we were talking and you said your kid recently started school. How's that been?
0: Yeah, so my daughter started school a couple of years ago, and she just turned eight. And my son, who's turning six this weekend, he just started kindergarten. We were having him take classes at the YMCA, some preschool, and he went from doing that for the first few hours of the day. And then we'd pick him up and bring him home and eat lunch with him and everything. And now he's got to go to school from like 7 a.m. to like 3 p.m. And he's been freaking out like, why is school so long? My goodness, I'm so tired all the time. So he didn't realize that school would be as involved a process. He was all excited. But now he's complaining about like just the sheer length of school. But meanwhile, my wife and I, we're, we're just like celebrating because we actually have some time around the house where we can get work done without having kids running around causing chaos. <laughs> so yeah, I think he's adapting. Uh, he's making friends, we're doing play dates and stuff and he's having fun. Uh, it's just a transition, you know, but it, it is nice because before I would walk my daughter to school and that was a very quick 10 minute round trip. And then I walk my son to school and that was like an hour round trip because we walked all the way to the YMCA and I would do that to kind of toughen him up and get him walking a lot. It was a huge chunk of time and now I can just grab both one munchkin hand in each hand and walk them to school and drop them off and and be done with it and get back to work. So it's definitely nice having both at the same school.
1: I love that work-life balance and that you're able to find and live somewhere that's affordable and has enough space for your family. And I wonder if we can draw a connection there between achieving that kind of lifestyle and learning to code and what the mission of Free Code Camp is for you and what that means to people and changing careers.
0: Absolutely. So my background is in teaching, and I was a a teacher and a school director at schools here in the U.S. and over in China, and that involved me being on campus, like working directly with my admin staff, with my instructional staff, and working directly with students. So working remotely was kind of like a foreign concept way back in like 2010 or so, 2011, when I started my transition into working as a software developer, but being able to work remotely has been a real game changer for me. And also, you can imagine like being a developer, you can command much larger compensation. And you have a lot more career options than, than being a teacher or a school director. So it, it's given me a lot of agency in what I wanted to do. Even before you know, starting FreeCodeCamp, when I was working as a software developer and doing freelance work and stuff, I was able to do everything remotely. And that just gave me a ton of flexibility. So the way that I learned to code personally was... I wanted to help our school be more efficient. A lot of our teachers, a lot of our admin, they were spending all day kind of chained to their desk, entering information into computers for compliance reasons, to be able to produce grade reports, to be able to produce attendance reports, immigration documents, all those things. And I just thought, like, is there a way that maybe I could automate some of this? And I didn't know anything about programming. I was about 31 years old. I was just sitting at my desk and I just started kind of like Googling around and learning some very basic programming. And with that, over the course of a few months, I was really able to transform how the school ran. And we like won an award and like a whole bunch of the students were like having a great time because they were spending so much more time with their teachers. And uh, they were like, hey, like telling all their friends and family to transfer into the school. So it was a massive success. And I thought, wow, if, if one person who doesn't even really know that much about programming can affect such a change with just a little bit of programming skills, Imagine what I could do if I actually learned to code properly. So I did that. I spent about nine months going to hackathons every weekend and reading a lot of books and using a lot of open courses online, like from MIT, from Stanford. And I kind of taught myself to code for free. And then I was able to get a job as a developer at a mid sized tech startup in California. And from there, I just learned more and more. And it was amazing. And it was an amazing transformation for me personally. And I thought, well, I want to help other people be able to do this because I know so many people out there would like to be working in a field where they have more conversation, a higher degree of control. They get to do creative work instead of, you know, tedious work. As a developer, you're constantly doing new stuff because code is infinitely reproducible. So you could always just go back to code you previously written if you needed to solve the same problem again. So you're always in this kind of learning mindset. You're always in this problem-solving mindset, and it's really thrilling It's just great, impactful work. So I wanted to help more people be able to do that, hence starting a bunch of different projects that people didn't care about, and then eventually starting a project that people did care about, which is Free Code Camp. And uh, since then, just
2: kind of leading this project and trying to help as many people as possible learn to code. So I was looking at your website, and I didn't even realize this until I was doing more research for the podcast, but you have over... 10,000 tutorials and they're in different categories. I saw you just recently released one on finance, which I actually bookmarked it because I'm going to go through it and look at it. You help more than a million people every day. So how was it when you first started out? Like how was, I guess you could say the grind, how was it in those early days? I'm a big advocate of, you know, for
0: work-life balance, but like, I kind of like exclude founders from that. I really do think that if you're trying to get something started, you're gonna have to work really hard and probably way beyond what would be reasonable for a person who is getting a salary or working at an existing company if you're trying to get things started. So I, I mean, it was like hundred hour weeks, maybe 120 some weeks. Uh, I would sleep and just wake up and get to my desk and try to like put out fires, fix the server, improve the code base respond to learners in the community who had feedback, uh, deal with support issues. Like I was basically doing everything myself. And gradually we were able to like build out the team over a long period of time. But really the first few years was me self-financing everything with just my teacher savings. spent like $150,000 of my own money, just trying to keep FreeCodeCamp going. For the first couple of years, we got tax exempt status from the IRS when that finally happened, I was like, great, Like, let's go out and see if we can get some people to donate. So we started asking people who were using FreeCodeCamp if they'd be willing to donate $3 a month and eventually $5 a month. And we were able to support the organization through that, really. It's just like a grassroots donor-supported effort. And then we've been able to get some grants from Linux Foundation, from Google, uh, from Microsoft, from a whole lot of other big tech companies and uh, from some other nonprofits in the space. But mostly it's just been like individual donors donating $5. And if you get enough people doing that, you get like a budget where you can actually pay for, you know, we have more than a hundred servers around the world serving free Code Camp in like six different languages. We have, you know, all these other like initiatives, like we've got Code Radio where you can go listen to lo-fi while you're coding and there's servers all over the world and you can change the bit rate to suit whatever data you have and everything. Like we wanted to just offer a whole lot of different services. We have mobile apps now. We've got an iOS and an Android app for Free Code Camp. And then, of course, we've got the podcasts. We've got four podcasts, one in English, which I host, and then we've got one in Spanish, one in Portuguese, and one in Chinese.
1: Yeah, I absolutely want to ask you more about your podcast. But first, I wanted to hear, can you tell me a little more about the decision to be 501c3 or a nonprofit status and Were you always firm in that decision? Do people question it? And what was the real reasoning and commitment to that formation?
0: I guess I would consider myself an idealist. Like I genuinely believe that most educational endeavors should be, you know, nonprofit. They should be driven by either governments or by charities. I'm always kind of skeptical when there's like some late-night TV commercial, like, here, we'll help you get our degree. And it's from like a private for-profit university, something like that. So I was like, in education, And I don't think everything in society needs to be that way, but I do think like education and to an extent healthcare, these should be led by charities like, you know, the Red Cross or like Doctors Without Borders or churches, you know, own many of the universities, many of the hospital systems in the United States. I think that's a good thing. I think it's a very good thing that it's not just, you know, private profit maximizing market incentive bound uh, organizations that are doing all the stuff in education and healthcare. I wanted to try to create something that like a lot of other people would see and say, oh, wow, this charity can actually survive. It can sustain itself uh, without raising a bunch of VC, without going public or any of those things that a a for-profit entity would do. And again, I just want to emphasize, like, I don't think that iPhones should be (laughs) made by nonprofits or anything like that. I'm, I'm just saying, like, for the purpose of actually educating people, the incentives are not necessarily aligned when you're trying to get money from, especially when you're talking about people that 60% of people on Earth live off less than $10 a day. Those people should be spending their money on food. They should be spending their money on shelter. They should be spending their money on family. They should not be spending money on online courses, in my humble opinion. Like online courses should be freely available to those people. So, to some extent, FreeCodeCamp we want to make sure that everybody, everywhere on the, in the world, has access to first-rate learning resources on math, programming, computer science, regardless of their ability to pay. So that's kind of like the ideal logical bent, I guess, of Free Code Camp. We kind of live that. We're like, we're really serious. We will never paywall anything on Free Code Camp. We won't account, email, gate, anything. We are, I guess, absolutist in the sense that we want all of Free Code Camp's learning resources to be free for everyone. Because of that, it made sense to like incorporate as a 501c3 public charity. And so we're tax exempt and people who donate to Free Code Camp, they can you know, deducted from their U.S. taxes. If a large company or even a small startup, we've had lots of startups like uh, New Relic, like Retool. We've had Postman, Hostinger, a whole lot of different startups and mid-sized tech companies, Palumi, Appsmith. They've all given us these grants that we can use to develop courses, so we can often develop courses incorporating those resources. But that's tax exempt. Uh, right they they can deduct that from their us taxes so it is a big invent- incentive for other people to partner with us and for people to donate funds to us and it allows us to have the interests aligned in the sense that only people who have you know free cash flow or who have disposable income those are the people that are supporting free co camp for the people that are you know single parents or that are taking care of their aging relatives or already working two jobs or are completely unemployed and don't have any funds to speak of that are using the public library computer to access free code camp, right? Or using free code camp on a $50 prepaid phone from Walmart or something like that, right? Like those people can still use free code camp and we can have the people who do have resources subsidize everyone else.
2: Wow. I absolutely love that because, and I wish. Free code camp was around whenever I was in like high school and, you know, the early 2000s, uh, cause we just didn't have the resources. Cause I grew up in a small town in Louisiana and this could have been so beneficial to that community because, like you said, we didn't have the resources, someone to teach coding there. There was no developers around that town that I was in. So I really appreciate that you're doing this for everyone. And I know for me, even, so I, when I reached out to you, I did it because I was excited because I've used Free Code Camp so many times, so many times to learn just in my journey to become a senior developer. like Free Code Camp was one of the resources that I used because one, it was free, but it wasn't I think sometimes you can get free resources and it's not great quality. Almost like it's almost like you're more confused than before. But with free Code Camp, it was very, very amazing quality, and it was very clear on what I was learning. I honestly, I thank you for helping me grow as a developer. Just honestly, thank you for that.
0: Absolutely. Well, uh, I feel honored to have uh, helped you, and yes, we want to help all the kids who are growing up in rural Louisiana, or I'm from you know, Oklahoma City, not like the biggest, most prosperous city in the United States. Like I wanna help all my friends who are growing up, who were eating meals provided by the state school system. All my uh, older friends who are on disability, like I wanna make sure that they have resources too. And uh, in the process of doing that, it's a privilege to also serve all the working software engineers like you out there who just need like a reference resource or like, oh, I, I've heard about BunJS or uh, Tailwind CSS or something like, I'm going to watch this three-hour course, or I'm going to learn how to do Flutter. Like FreeCodeCamp is a 37-hour Flutter course. We've got like all these courses on, you know, using OpenAI APIs and things like that too, right? So it's not just for beginners, but we, we definitely want to, like first and foremost, we want to serve people who we're kind of like the resource of last resort for, if you want to think of it that way, like like Free Code camp, only Free code Camp can help these people. Sure, they can probably use some other free courses on YouTube and there, there are lots of other blogs that, that publish good tutorials and stuff. But Free code Camp is like an organized effort specifically to help those people in need. And just kind of a side benefit of it is that, you know, more established experienced devs like you also get kind of like some benefit out of it as well.
2: Whenever you were a developer and you decided to start free code camp, how many years of experience did you have? And how did you overcome imposter syndrome? Not only as a developer, but as a founder, because I feel like just overcoming as a developer is hard, but you were also, you know, like you said, you know, handling everything for free code camp. So how did you do that and kind of tell us about that experience? Yeah. So I didn't
0: really know what I was doing. I think most founders probably don't know what they're doing. And I think that's totally fine because you can learn what you're doing. And we live in the United States, which is a country that kind of rewards experimentation and does not punish failure as much as a lot of other cultures does. Even if you try really hard, you're going to learn a tremendous amount and you're going to try your next project. And, and that's what I did. I, tried, I launched several educational, like open learning resource type projects and none of them made any dent at all in the proverbial universe, like nobody cared. Like I, I would go and like, I'd be talking to people and I'd be explaining like, Oh, this solves this problem that you have. And and you could kind of tell like people would sign in one time just to be polite, but then they never sign in again. So it was very tricky to get traction. And I read a bunch of books and I went to a lot of uh, founder focused meetups in San Francisco Bay area. I'd, I'd like moved out to San Francisco specifically to try to like kind of make up for the, my deficit the fact that I didn't know anybody because I was from Oklahoma City, uh, I didn't know anybody in tech, and I didn't have like a fancy you know pedigree from like Harvard or Wharton or something like that, right? Like I was uh, I went to like a state university and I studied English, <laughs> right? So uh, I didn't even have like a CS degree or anything like that. So I definitely felt like an imposter. I just had to kind of like power through that and be okay with that. And it's something a little bit easier for me to do because you know I'm a a white guy with glasses and a beard and like nobody's walking up saying, are you sure you're a developer? Like, or are you in marketing? You know, like the typical kind of like slice that they may say to somebody who doesn't necessarily look like me. So I didn't have to deal with any of that nonsense, but but there was still a lot of just self doubt that I had to power through. And, and I think that was a big advantage for me. It was just like, I was kind of like at war with myself and my own confidence In fact, I found the software development community and especially the open source community to be incredibly uplifting and empowering. Like they want to see you win. They want you to sit down and build a really cool project over the weekend in the hackathon and present it. And, you know, they want you to learn. They know that, you know, everybody's going to learn at a different rate and that a lot of people are going to get discouraged and and leave tech and just go back to working in whatever field they were working in before. And that's totally cool. But I do feel that they're there to support you and to encourage you. And there are lots of different events. There are lots of different communities. I recently listened to the founder of Women Who Code, who was on this very podcast, <laughs> this giant robots, giant robots the, the greatest podcast name of all time. And, you know, there are people out there that are working very hard to make it easier for folks to get into the tech. I think that that has been a huge part. Even before Free Code Camp, even, you know, there were Harvard professors, Stanford professors putting their entire coursework for free online. there You could go to like different tech events around California, for example, where I was when I was learning to code and there'd just be tons of people that were eager to like learn more about you and to welcome you. And there would be employee, you know, recruiters that would talk to you and say, well, you may not be ready yet, but like let's talk in six months, right? And, and so there was kind of like that, that spirit of you're gonna get there, it's just gonna take a lot of time. Nobody was telling me, oh, learning to code is easy because <laughs> it's not easy. There were lots of people that were like, learning the code is hard, but you've got this, just stick with it. If I could be of help, let me know. People who would pair program with me to help me like improve my chops. People who would volunteer to like look at my projects and, and give design feedback, all those kinds of things. And I think you're gonna find all those things on the web. You're gonna find those things in the open source community. Free Code Camp has a forum where people volunteer their time and energy to help build one another up and help one another get unstuck on whatever project they're working on, give feedback on projects. And so I think to a large extent, the very giving nature, I almost want to say like selfless nature of the global software developer community, that is what saved me. And that's what enabled me to transition into this field, even as a teacher in his 30s.
1: It's interesting you say that because I feel... As someone who hires engineers and developers, I love people who have teaching backgrounds because it means they're five-star communicators. (laughs) And I think that, you know, in your job, when you're pairing with other developers or you're talking to clients in our case, that communicating what you're working on and how you're thinking about something is like 50% of the job. (laughs) For Free Code Camp, I saw you have 40,000 people have found jobs after completing courses on there. I hope you feel like you've really like established some success here already, but what's on the horizon? What are you looking forward to in the next six months or six years with FreeCodeCamp?
0: Yeah, I'll be happy to answer that, but, but I want to emphasize what you just said. Communication is like half the job. That's something that ThoughtBot has gotten really early on. And I'll tell you that, that ThoughtBot playbook was incredibly helpful for me as a software developer and also early on for FreeCodeCamp's team. Uh, and I think a lot of teams make use of that open resource. So thank you for continuing to uh, maintain that and kind of drive home that communication really is like meetings are essential and it's not all just like, leave me alone. Let me go back to my cubicle and code. You know, I like to, I like to quote the old joke that, you know, weeks of coding can save you hours of meetings because I really do believe that communication is core. So to answer your question about where free is headed in terms of what kind of impact we'd like to have? I feel like we're just getting started. I feel like pretty much every t- Fortune 500 company wants to become a tech company in some way or another. Everybody's pushing things to the software layer because software is infinitely reproducible. It's so much easier to maintain software, fix things in production, like you realize, oh, there's a big problem. Like we don't have to recall all the cars back to the dealerships to go and open up the hood and fix this, you know mechanical defect if we're controlling all these things at the software layer, right? We can potentially just deploy a fix uh, and tell people like, hey, version update, (laughs) you know, download the security patch or whatever, right? So there are so many different things that you can do with software. I feel like the potential growth of the field of software and the number of software developers that the world will ultimately need. Currently we've got maybe 30 or 40 million developers on earth that are professional paid to code people. Uh, But I I think that number is gonna increase dramatically over the next 50 years or so. And I'll go ahead and address the elephant in the room because pretty much everybody asks me this question. Like, don't you think that like tools like large language models, like GPT-4 and things are, are going to obviate the need for so many developers. And I think they're gonna make individual developers more productive. But if you think about what code is, it's really extremely explicit directions for how to do something. Whether you're using you know machine code or you're using a scripting language like Python, or you're using English and you're talking directly to the computer like you would on Star Trek. Essentially, you have to have a really deep understanding of the problem and you need to know exactly what needs to be done and exactly what sequence. You may not need to manipulate bytecode like you would back in the 70s, but you are going to need to understand the fundamental problems and you're going to need to be able to address it. So I'm very, I'm optimistic that the number of developers is going to continue to grow. The developers are going to continue to command more and more, I guess, respect in society. And they're going to continue to have more and more agency in what they want to do with their careers and have more and more options and ultimately be able to command higher compensation, be able to work remotely if they'd like. Developers will continue to be able to ascend through corporate hierarchies and, and become you know, vice presidents or even uh, executive, like the CEO, right? if you look at a lot of the big tech companies, the CEO is a developer, and I think that that will continue, and the computer science degrees will continue to be extremely valuable. So what is FreeCodeCamp working on now that we think will further help people? Well, we're working on a free four-year computer science degree, a bachelor in computer science, and there's also an associate in mathematics that we're developing, and those are going to be a progression of 40 university-level courses that have labs and have a substantial block of lectures uh, that you'll watch and then we'll also have final examinations and everything. And we're developing that curriculum. We've got uh, one of the courses live and we're developing the second one and eventually we'll have all 40. It'll take till the 2030s, but we're going to have those. And then once we have some longitudinal data about graduates and their success rates and everything, we are going to apply for the accreditation process and we're going to get accredited as a university right? Like you can go through that process. Not a lot of organizations do that. Not a lot of new universities are coming about in the 2020s, but it is something that can be done. And we've done a great deal of research, talked to a bunch of accreditors, talked to a bunch of university admins who go through the accreditation process. We think we can do it. So again, very long-term goal, but when you're a 501c3 public charity, you don't have to worry about free camp getting acquired or all the things that would traditionally happen with like a for-profit company, you have a lot more leeway to plan really far. And you've got like this really broad mandate in terms of what you want to accomplish. And even if, you know, creating a university degree program in the 2030s would not be a profitable endeavor that like a rational shareholder value maximizing corporation would embark upon. It is the sort of project that, you know, a charity like Free could Camp can do. So we're going to do it
2: giant robots smashing into other giant robots
0: starting a new project we understand that you want to make the right choices in technology features and investment but that you don't have all year to do extended research in just a few weeks thoughtbot's discovery sprints deliver a user-centered product journey a clickable prototype or proof of concept and key market insights from focused user research We'll help you to identify the primary user flow, decide which framework should be used to bring it to life, and set a firm estimate on future development efforts. Maximize impact and minimize risk with a validated roadmap for your new product. Get started at tbot.io/sprint.
1: I think that's great, and actually, you no, know, I got my masters in information technology and project management online uh, way back when, so. I really like the availability of modern computer science bachelors and masters being available at that low price point, and you're able to pursue that with the business structure you put in place. I'm curious to kind of go back to something you said earlier on how widely available it is and how you have spread out across all these multiple countries. Were there any technical architecture decisions that you had to make along the way, um, and how did those decisions end up turning out?
0: Absolutely. So one of the things we did was we located servers all around the world. We're multi-cloud, and we've got uh, servers in different data centers in like Singapore, uh, Europe, uh, Latin America, and we're trying to reduce latency for everybody. Another thing that we've done is, you know, we don't use like Google Translate to just translate all our different pages into however many languages are currently available on Google Translate. I think it's like more than a hundred. Uh, we actually have. A big localization effort that's led primarily by volunteers. We have some staff uh, that oversee some of the translation and essentially we have a whole bunch of people working at translate.freecodecamp.org and translating the curriculum, translating tutorials into major world languages. Uh, most prominently would be Spanish, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Portuguese, Ukrainian, like all these different world languages. There's like a free CoCamp version for those. And you can go into the menu and you can choose it. And it's it's actually like hand translated by native speakers of that language who are developers. So that's been another extremely, you know, time intensive effort by the community. But we believe that, you know, the quality of the translations is really important. And we, we want that kind of human touch. We don't want kind of weird artifacts and typos that would be associated with machine translation. Uh, and we want to make sure that each of the challenges, because they're extremely tersely worded, again, communication is so important. If you go through the Free Code Camp curriculum, we try to use as few words as absolutely necessary to effectively communicate what the task the learner needs to accomplish is. And we try to, just in time, teach them concepts. We don't want to present them with a big wall of text. Read this 20-page PDF to understand how you know CSS you know borders work or something like that. No, we're, we're teaching like kind of like just in time, like, okay, let's write this line of code. Okay, great. Here, The test passed. Let's go to this next one. This test isn't passing. Here are some contextual specific hints as to why your code is not passing, why you're not able to advance, right? And we do project-oriented learning where we break everything down into steps. So that's a lot of instructions that need to be very carefully translated into these different world languages to truly make Free code Camp accessible to everyone, regardless of whether they happen to be fortunate enough to grow up speaking English at a native level, right? I would say that's our main consideration is like the localization effort, but also just having servers everywhere and uh, doing everything we can to comply with like all the different data rules and privacy rules and everything of all these different countries. It's a lot of work, but in my humble opinion, it's worth it.
2: I had like a two-part question uh, because I want to loop back around. When you were talking about the free bachelor's program, one – Does anything like that exist where you can get a bachelor level program and it's free? And then the second part is how many countries are you in?
0: Yeah. So currently lots of governments in Europe, for example, will offer free degrees that are kind of subsidized by the state. There may be some other kind of degree equivalent programs that are offered, like that are subsidized by corporations. For example, if you work at Starbucks, I think you can get a degree from Arizona State University. And that's a great benefit that Starbucks offers to people. Uh, Arizona State University, of course, being one of the biggest public universities in the United States in terms of enrollment. As far as free degrees, though, in the United States, there's nothing like that That where like literally anyone can just go and get a degree for free without needing to enroll, without needing to pay any sort of fees. There are tuition-free programs, but they still charge you fees for like taking exams and things like that. What I like to call ultra-low-cost degree providers... There's Western Governors University and there's University of the People. And both of these are accredited institutions that you can go and you can get a degree for, you know, five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars dollars $15,000. And it's a full-blown four-year degree. Now, that is amazing. I applaud those efforts. I've enjoyed talking to the, the folks at those different schools. I think the next step is to go truly free. There's nothing blocking you at all. You don't have to be banked. you don't have to have a credit card. You don't have to have any money. You can still get this degree. That's what we're chasing. and, and I think we'll get there, but it's it's just a lot of work.
2: So it's blowing my mind. just it's just blowing me away because like, you know, we talk about the student loan crisis, I would say, the impact if when I'm not going to say, if when you do this, the impact that can have on there have you thought about that and kind of if you have what has been your thoughts around that
0: yeah so there are 1.7 trillion dollars in outstanding student loans in the United States that's money that individual people most of whom don't make a ton of money right like many of those people didn't actually finish the degree that they incurred the debt to pursue many of them had to drop out for a variety of different reasons or defer uh, maybe they'll eventually finish those degrees but as you can see from like the macro economic educational, like labor market data, like having a partial degree doesn't make a big difference in terms of your earning power. You really need to finish the degree to be able to realize the benefits of having spent all that time studying. And a lot of people haven't. So yes, there are like a lot of people out there that uh, went to medical school, for example, and they're working as physicians and they are going to eventually be able to pay that off because they're doctors and they're commanding a great compensation, right? And they've got tons of career options. But if you studied English like I did, and you incurred a whole lot of student debt, it could take a very long time for you to make enough money as a teacher or as like a grant writer or uh, working at a newspaper or something like that. Like it could take you years to pay it off. And in the meantime, it's just continuing to accumulate interest you in your, you know, you might be a very diligent person who pays their student loan bill every single month. And yet you could see that amount, the total uh, amount that you owe continuing to grow despite this. That's just the nature of the time value of money and the nature of debt. And I think my lucky stars that I went to school back in like 2000, like my my tuition was a thousand dollars a semester, right? Uh, I mean, it's incredible, but that was like at a, a state school, like a public university in the middle of Oklahoma. And it's not like a university you've heard of. It's basically the, like the cheapest possible option. I think community colleges can make a huge dent. I always implore people to think more about community colleges. I've talked with so many people on the Free Code Camp podcast who were able to leverage community colleges and then transition into a uh, you know research university, like like a, a state school and finish out their degree there. But they saved like basically half their money because they were paying almost nothing to attend a community college. And in California, especially the community colleges are just ridiculously worth it. <laughs> like you're paying a few hundred dollars a course. I mean, it's just incredible value. So I think the community college system is going to play a big role. But my hope is that, you know, Co Camp can arrive and it'll take us years for people to realize, because if you go on like, Google ads and you try to run a Google ad for like uh, any sort of educational related topic, anything related to higher education, it's like hundreds of dollars per click (laughs) because there are all these for-profit universities that make a tremendous amount of money from getting people who just came back from serving in the military and getting like huge chunks of their GI bill or, or getting like all these federal subsidies, any number of things, or, or just basically just tricking families into paying huge amounts of money when they could have attended a much more sensible public university or you know, a private nonprofit university that doesn't charge an arm and a leg. So I think that we are going to have an impact. I just want to say that I don't think that this is a panacea. It's going to take many years for FreeCocamp Camp to be adopted by a whole lot of people. It'll take a long time for employers to look at the FreeCocamp Camp degree and say, oh, this is comparable to a computer science degree from, say, Ohio State or UT Austin or something like that. Right. Like it's going to be a long time before we can get that level a buy-in. I don't want anybody listening to say, "Oh, I'd love to get a computer science degree." I'm just going to hold out and get the degree from free. Co camp. Like my humble advice would be: go to a community college, then go to a state school, get that four year computer science degree. It is worth its weight in gold. But you don't want to accumulate a lot of debt. Just try to like minimize your debt in the meantime, and hopefully over time, you know the free model will prove out, and it'll just be a whole bunch of alumni supporting free co camp. And that's the dream: is that like. You know, Michael Bloomberg gave a billion dollars to John Hopkins University, a billion dollars. Like John Hopkins never needs to charge tuition again with a billion dollars. They can just basically operate their institution off the interest from that. Right. And and lots of institutions like Harvard has, I don't know, like 60 plus million dollar billion dollars in their endowment. Right. So the idea would be Free Camp continues to get this, you know, huge alumni network of people who are doing great and who went to free coke camp and who basically donate back in. And then we can essentially have the deep pockets subsidizing everybody else who's just at the beginning of their careers, who, who don't have a lot of earning power. Who you know, When I was a teenager, when I was in my 20s, I worked at convenience stores. I worked at Taco Bell. I did all kinds of like literally showing up at 6 a.m. to mop the grocery store type jobs right? And that is not a path to being able to afford an education in 2023. University tuition is out of control. It's like ridiculously high. It's it's grown way faster than inflation for decades. So what can we do to alleviate that pressure? In my humble opinion, we just need to come up with free options and support ultra low cost options that are already out there.
1: I was going to ask, but you might have already answered this question somewhat, but I get this question a lot for people who are interested in getting into tech, whether they should get a computer science degree or go to a boot camp. And I think you, you've you mentioned all the, all the positive things about getting a degree. I'm curious if in your degree program, you would also tailor it more to what people might expect in a modern tech market and industry in their first job?
0: Yeah. So the way that we're developing our degree program is we essentially did like, An analysis of the top 20 computer science programs in the United States Carnegie Mellon, Berkeley, Stanford, MIT, all those schools that you would think of as being like really good computer science programs. And we basically drew a best fit line through all their course offerings and looked at all their textbooks and everything they cover. And essentially, we're teaching a composite of those top 20 programs. Now, there are some things that surprisingly those programs don't offer, such as a course on ethics. (laughs) Something like 13% of those degree programs require an ethics course and i think every developer should take a developer ethics course or at least some sort of philosophy course to like understand what does it mean to be a good person <laughs> like what what is uh you know uh an anti pattern what is black hat user experience design like what when should i like raise my hand during a meeting to say like hey should we really be doing this you know So, uh, ethics, uh, security courses, I was surprised that not very many of those degree programs offer a course in information security, which I believe should be required. So I'm kind of editorializing a little bit on top of what the composite says, but I feel very strongly that, you know, our degree program needs to have those courses, but in general, it's just everything that everybody else is teaching. And yes, like a coding bootcamp, uh, I've written a lot about coding bootcamps. I wrote like a coding bootcamp handbook, uh, which you can just Google, like, coding bootcamp book or something like that, probably, and you can find it. But essentially like those programs are usually private. Even if it's at a big public university, it's often run by a big private for-profit bootcamp chain. I don't want to say like all bootcamps are a bad deal, but buyer beware. (laughs) Frankly, I don't think that you can learn everything you need to know to be a software engineer within the compressed timelines that a lot of those bootcamps are operating under. There's a reason it takes four years to get a computer science degree, because there's a tremendous amount of math, programming, computer science, engineering, knowledge that you need to cultivate, and you can absolutely get a developer job without a computer science degree. I don't have a computer science degree. I worked as a software engineer, right? And I know plenty of people who are doing that that didn't even go to college, right? People who were truckers or people who were doing construction work, who just sat down and hit the books really hard and came out the other side being able to work as a software developer. But it's going to be vastly easier for you if you do have a computer science degree. Now, if you're in your 30s, if you've got kids, if you've got a whole lot of other obligations, should you go back to school? Maybe not. And so it's not cut and dry like, oh, just drop whatever you're doing and go back to computer science. The situation is going to be nuanced. If you've already got a job working as a developer, should you go back and get a CS degree? Probably not. Maybe you can get your employer to pay for you to go to like a a CS master's program, for example. There are a lot of really good online master's degree programs. Like Georgia Tech has a master's of computer science that is very affordable and it's very good. Georgia Tech is one of the best computer science programs in the United States. So definitely like everybody's situation is going to be different and there's no blanket advice. Uh, I would just be very wary of like anybody who's talking to you who wants your money (laughs) Uh, free code will never want your money for anything. Like it, we would love to have your donations long after you're a successful developer, turn around and like send the elevator back down, uh, by donating to free code camp, but, uh, just be skeptical and like do your research and don't buy into like the marketing speak about like being able to get a job immediately. Oh, it's easy. Anybody can learn to code. Like I do believe any sufficiently motivated person can learn to code but i also believe that it's a process that can take years especially if you're doing the safe thing and continuing to work your day job while you learn these skills over a much longer period of time i don't believe learning in a compressed kind of boot camp like if you think about you know boot camp in the military like it's like you're getting shipped away and you're doing nothing but like learning these skills and everything like that and I don't think that that's right for programming, personally. <laughs> I think I think there's a reason why many of these programs have gone from nine weeks to twelve weeks to six months. Some of them might be like an entire year now. It's because it, it it's them kind of admitting that like oh, there's quite a bit to learn here, and it's going to take some time. And there's diminishing returns to learning a whole bunch of hours in a day. I think you'll make much better gains studying programming one hour a day, three hundred sixty five days, than you'll make studying you know eight hours a day for like two months or something like that if that makes sense uh, i'm not sure if the math works out there but my point is it's totally fine and it's actually quite optimal to just work your day job take care of your kids uh spend time with your parents you know do all those things H- hang out with friends have a social life all those things in addition to just having programming be one of those things you're working on on in the background with your mornings well, or your tell evenings. us
2: a little bit about your podcast um yeah, tell us kind of what what's the purpose of it and just the history of it.
0: Yeah, well, I learned from the best. So I'm a longtime listener of this podcast, of course. Uh, my friend Saran Yitbarak hosts Code Newbie, which is an excellent podcast. Uh, the Changelog, uh, which is an open-source podcast. I've I've had a great time interviewing the Changelog hosts and being on their show several times. Uh, so I, I basically just learned as much as I could. And then I just went out and started interviewing people. And so I've interviewed a lot of devs. I've interviewed people that are like learning to code, driving Uber. Um, I've interviewed the founder of Stack Overflow, Jeff Atwood. Uh, I'm going to interview the founder of Trello in a few weeks when I'm back out in New York City. And I do my interviews in person. Uh, I just have my mobile studio. when I'm in San Francisco, when I'm in New York, I just go around and do a bunch of interviews and, and kind of bank them and then I edit them myself. And uh, publish them, and the goal is just to give people exposure to developers. What are developers thinking? What are developers talking about? What do developers care about? And I try to hit like a very broad range of developers. Try to talk to uh, as many women as possible, and, and you know, striving for like fifty percent representation or better on the podcast. Um, and I talk to a lot of people from different countries, although that's a little harder to do when you're recording in person, I may break down and do some over, uh, Zencaster, which is a tool we've used in the past. Uh, I just like the spontaneity and and the fun of meeting with people in person, but yeah, it's just like, if you are looking for like long form, some of these are like two and a half hour long discussions where we really delve into people's backstory and like what inspired them to become a developer, what they're learning along the way, how they feel about different aspects of software development. Like for example, uh, Earlier, Will, you mentioned imposter syndrome, which is something I think virtually everybody struggles with in some capacity. You know, the Free Code Camp podcast. Tune in and subscribe. And uh, if you have any feedback for me, I'd love to hear it. I'm still learning. I'm doing my best as a podcast host. And uh, I'm constantly learning about tech as it evolves, as new tools come out, as new practices are pioneered, as entire new technologies, like large language models that actually work. I mean, we've had those since like the the sixties, like language models and stuff. But like only recently have they become incredibly impressive. Exploring these tools and exploring a lot of the uh, people behind them.
1: Okay, great. Do you have any questions for me or Will?
0: Yeah. What inspired you all to get involved in tech? And, and I don't know if somebody did. Somebody at Thoughtbot actually approach you and say, "Hey, we want you to run this," or was this something where like I'd love to run this? Like because podcasting is not easy. You're putting yourself out there. You're saying things. That are recorded forever. (laughs) And so if you say something really naive or silly or something like that, that's that's kind of always there, right? It takes a certain amount of bravery to do this. What got you into hosting this podcast?
1: For me, I mean, if I go way back for getting into tech, my mom, she got her undergraduate degree in horticulture to become a florist. Then they realized she couldn't make any money off that and went back to school for computer science. And so she taught me how to use a computer really early on. And when I was in school, I had started in architecture and then uh, wanted to change into business intelligence, So, I, but I didn't want to apply to the business school. So I got a degree in economics and a job at the IT help desk. And then from there, I was able to kind of transition into tech as a teacher, which is oddly enough, uh, my first job in tech was training a 400 person program. How to do like version management and peer reviews (laughs) and timekeeping. And the reason I got the job is a friend from rock climbing introduced me and he's like, they're like, oh, well, you train people how to rock climb. You can train people how to like do this stuff. (laughs) I was like, okay, that sounds great. But, anyways, I worked my way up into project management and ended up getting my master's in IT. And um, when I came to Thoughtbot, I had just moved to California. And I wanted to rebuild my network. I had a big network in DC organizing meetups and DevOps DC, women who code, teaching people and and communicating. And I ran a a very small podcast there with a friend. So when I joined ThoughtBot, a podcast was a great way to just meet different people, expand my network, give something uh, people to talk to me about when I go to events. (laughs) Um, That's not just like, let me sell you some DevOps work. For me, it's been really fun to just reach out to people that we admire in the community and and hear their story and, and a little bit about them and what advice they have for themselves or for other people. And usually that ends up benefiting me as well. So it's been very fun for me.
0: So your less conventional path into tech combined with your own experience doing podcasting, it sounds like you were a natural choice for hosting the podcast.
1: Right. and And I think I said before we started the show, I didn't realize that it was such a well-loved and long-running podcast. <laughs> I <agree. laughs> but I think we've uh, really come into our own a little bit with hosting and it's it's been super fun to work with Will and Chad on it as well.
0: Awesome. And Will, what's your story, man? How did you get onto the uh, cover the Giant Robots Smashing into Giant Robots podcast?
2: I actually went to college for sports medicine and I was on track to go to med school, but my senior year, which I wish I would have had this conversation with myself a lot earlier, didn't have to do the hard work that I did uh, undergraduate, but my senior year, I was like, "Why am I really going to med school?" And honestly, it was more for the money, for the yeah, more for the money. I just want to get paid a lot of money. I was like, "Yeah, that's not going to sustain me. I I need to just pivot." So I pivoted, started working at some nonprofits, and I end up losing my job. And got another job at Buckle, the clothing store, which was not a great fit for me. It helped me provide, but that's just not who I am. Uh, I'm not a fashion icon. (laughs) And then I changed to a travel agency insurance company, which... It paid the bills. I wasn't passionate about it at all. And it paid the bills. And I was still struggling from losing my job. It was the first time that I lost my job. And my spouse came to me one day and was like, all right, we're going to have this serious talk. And we almost flipped roles because that's usually who I am. I'm like, all right, let's have a real talk. Let's get down to it. But I was just in a bad place. And she was like, all right, we have to change because we can't keep going down this path. So she was like, if you had a choice to do anything, what would you want to do? And I was like, well, probably something with computers and coding because I never had that opportunity when I was growing up because of the small town. And she looked at me, she's like, go sign up right now. And I was like, okay, I'm going to sign up. <laughs> when you mentioned that you made a transition in your 30s, I was around my 30s when I made the transition into coding. And so it was a big transition. It was a big pivot for me because I'm having to learn almost like I'm in college again, which was eight years ago. And so it was just tough and it was new. Uh, so that's how I got into coding. Uh, how I got on the podcast, I think I was talking to Chad and my uh, direct report, I was just talking to them about challenging myself, and so it was multiple things. But like writing blog posts, that was actually very challenging to me. I still don't like to write; it's not my favorite thing. Uh, give me math or something like that, or science—that's where I feel at home. But whenever you know you talk about writing and stuff, like I can do it, and I'm decent at it, but it's not something that I feel comfortable in. The same thing with the podcast. The reason why I got on here is because I want to get out of my comfort zone and I wanted to grow. And I also wanted to get a chance to talk to people who's making a difference, who's impacting the world. So like this conversation today is like, yes, this is why I wanted to be a part of this podcast. So yeah, that's how I got started in tech and on the podcast.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm thrilled that you went ahead and persevered and, and got into tech. It doesn't sound like it was a straight line and it rarely is for people, but uh, I'm always excited to meet somebody who learned to code in their thirties, who who stuck with it and is prospering as a result. So congratulations to you. Thank you.
1: I'm still learning. I haven't quite gotten past Hello Worlds multiple times, (laughs) but I don't really code every day for my job. I just kind of need to know what stuff is to be able to talk to people and in that way as a managing director. So I appreciate Will bringing that backstory to this episode in particular. What else? Any other final takeaways that you'd like to leave our listeners with?
0: I just want to thank you all for continuing to host this podcast. Thought about for operating the uh, excellent playbook, which if anybody listening is unfamiliar with, you should check it out. Again, it's just chock full of institutional wisdom uh, accumulated over the years. And I hope everybody out there who's thinking about taking the plunge and learning coding or software development, or even like a semi-technical area of being in the software development process, uh, learning visual design, learning how to do user experience research, any number of the different roles in tech. I hope you'll go for it and I hope you will be as undaunted as you can. And just know that Free Code Camp and the Free Code Camp community, we're in your corner. If you need to learn something, there's a very good chance that we have some tutorials written by thoughtful teachers who want people like you to come forward and like read these resources and use it. There's, there's a saying like the thing that programmers want the most is to have their code running in production somewhere. And as a teacher, the thing you want the most is for you to have students, for you to have learning resources out there that are making a positive difference. So again, I just count my blessings every day that I'm able to be involved in this community I hope anyone listening who wants to transition into tech or to become even more technical gets involved in the Free Code Camp community as well. We welcome you.
2: Are there any opportunities? I know we talked about donations. So, for one, where can they go if they want to donate? And then also, like, you know, if developers want to get to be a part of the open source uh, network you have, is that possible and how can they do that?
0: Absolutely. So, if you want to donate to Free Code Camp, just go to donate.freecodecamp.org. And you can become like a $5 a month donor if you'd like. If you want to give a larger amount, I've got this article. Just, just Google how to donate to Free Code Camp. And I've written this detailed guide to like all the different ways, like mailing checks. We had a gentleman who passed away and left a whole lot of money for Free Code Camp in his will. So those kind of legacy gifts are, are definitely something we've had people donate stock, like any number of different things. I will bend over backwards to make sure that we can receive your donation and we can give you a tax receipt. So you can deduct it from your taxes as well if you'd like. And then uh, for contributing to Free Code Camp, of course, we're an open source project and we welcome your code contributions. We have spent a great deal of time trying to make Free Code Camp as hospitable as possible for both new developers who want to get involved and more senior developers who just want to uh, do some like 20% time type contributing to open source projects. Contribute.freecodecamp.org. So again, donate freecocamp.org and www.contribute.freecodecamp.org Those will take you where you need to go.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much again, Quincy, for joining us. And you can subscribe to the show and find notes along with a complete transcript for this episode at GiantRobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at host at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at
2: VictoriousG. And you can find me on Twitter at Will23Larry. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Mandy Moore. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
1: This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot, your expert strategy, design, development, and product management partner. We bring digital products from idea to success and teach you how because we care. Learn more at ThoughtBot.com.